So God is a good God. He's wonderful. It is great to have you in church this morning. Hello. How are you? Give us a wave if you're alive. Who'd rather be in church than the best hospital in Armadale? Three of you. <laughs> it's good to see you all the way back there. And uh, great service. Bless you. It's always a good service when I forget that I'm a pastor and I just find myself a believer, just as a child of God, loving God. That to me is always great. Sometimes it's very hard to forget you're a pastor and all the stuff you've got to do and things. Uh, yeah, we've had a busy week with prayer breakfasts and things and Karen, the team with Gary did an awesome job just lifting the standard and Sarah and Dave and Jono and Jason and Sean and I've probably forgotten someone as well, but uh, Shay, a whole bunch of people really turned up and just showed off for Jesus. It was just wonderful. People then ask the question, why do we do what we do? And they can point them to Jesus. So awesome stuff. And uh, if you're in church this morning, you're a first-time visitor, going to be coming for a little while, we would like to invite you into our hospitality facility, our welcome lounge, which is you just go out that doors and you throw a left as I sit, or as a right, no, as you go out to the left, behind the red doors, uh, you will find, uh, we'll give you coffee and some salad things. So, how's that sound? It's all good? So, we have been actually going through a expositional study of the book of Corinth, and I'm going to challenge, because the way my mind works, I just see one verse, and I tend to tend to want to mine it deeper and deeper and deeper. I think that somehow is the way we should actually treat the Word of God, rather than just trying to read the Bible, you know, hey, I read the whole Bible in a week, to actually get hold of a scripture and suck the life out of it, get the deep truth out of it. And I find that the Word of God is bottomless. The more you plunge its depths, the more you find great revelation and great truth and stuff. And so I don't want to do to this church what I did to my first church in Rockingham where I taught from the Gospel of Luke for about two years. And we got to chapter 2. So the fact that we're up to chapter 10 is pretty exciting for me because it means I'm actually covering a lot of ground very quickly. And who knows that we have been covering some pretty sensitive material. Uh, stuff that you may not get preached in every church, but it's in the Bible. And one of the great advantages of preaching the Word is that you're not just not going to my favorite subjects. Like if you want to buy me chocolate, my favorite is cherry ripe. Who, who's a cherry ripe guy? Oh, <laughs> all the anointed people, you know, that's... So if it's, you know, mixed things, you know, you can keep your flakes, you know, you can, you can keep your Mars bars, you know. But if there's a cherry ripe, you might get hurt in the process. I love my cherry ripe. Now, some people treat the Word of God like that. They've got their cherry ripes in the Word. You know, it might be faith, it might be praise and worship, but what it forces you to do is actually go through. And there is, um, I have a plan with where we're going. Because with the church at Corinth, it was a pretty busted church. Yeah? If we've been through the journey, we've noticed that, you know, this wasn't a church that had it all together. Paul has great hope for the church, but he has recognized that there's issues with division, 
uh, immorality, drunkenness at the Lord's table, you know, a whole range of issues are plaguing this church. And when we stand back and we look at the church of Corinth, we say, it looks a bit like us. Looks a lot like us. But one of the tremendous things about the book of Corinth is eventually we'll get to chapter 11, hopefully next week, where we start talking about the Holy Spirit and moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that Corinth really tells us that the ability to move in the supernatural power of God actually has very little to do with how holy your life is. That's not often the way it's presented, is it? It's actually presented that you've got to be sort of like almost perfect, floating six inches off the ground, you know, like a little hovercraft, you know, just near to Jesus, you know, for you to move in the gifts. That's not what Paul suggests. And so as we move into this area, I really do want to see our church again welcome back the Holy Spirit as a really present personality in our building. More than just the rhetoric and the words, but actually see the Holy Spirit at work just not on the stage, but actually within the hearts and the souls and the practice of us as believers. And yes, we want to do that decently in order, but we're going to move there. We're also going to tackle the issue of women in ministry, which is going to be something that we don't often hear about, but we'll talk that through. We will cover the whole book at some stage. But today we're in chapter 10. We're going to try and do one chapter of the Bible again in 32 minutes. (laughs) Very easy. So, easy peasy. So, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're actually only going to cover the first 14 14 verses because the second part of it revisits the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols. And we really covered that a little bit last week. So, this week we are only going to do uh, 10 verses 1 to 14. And, oh, Heather Devine, come read the scripture for me this morning. Let's give Heather a hand. One of the heroes in our house. Matt, can I have the microphone? You can do better than that. She's a redhead. She needs encouragement. (laughs) Want to come up here? Yeah. We, We like everybody on display, Heather. She'll kill me for this, I know. But I've got my iPad-y thing here if you want to. You know how to use these things? Works just like that, yeah. 1 to 14, please. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us, so that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor would we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did. And when, then they, 
and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. If you think you were standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptation in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So, my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. Titus 14. Fantastic. <laughs> Give her a hand. She did very well. Thanks, Heather. So, uh, you know, I've just looked, uh, I've just split that, this, I'm sorry, slow down, Mike. Do you, do you know that some people's minds work faster than their mouth? It's nice. Very good. <laughs> Very good. So I want to talk to you today about learning. Looking and leading. Also, I want to thank Wendy for singing the national anthem for us on Sunday, on Thursday. It was good, much better than me. I mean, we've all heard uh, George Santayana, Harvard intellectual, who said, "Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it." The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. The only thing that ha- uh, Santayana has done is written a lot of books that no one ever reads. Is it actually possible to learn from the past? Is it possible to learn from other people's mistakes? And the wise people says, yes. You know, you can make your own mistakes, can't you? Anybody used to doing that? Making your own mistakes? Who knows, making your own mistakes tend to hurt you. Whereas if you can actually learn from someone else's mistake, you can watch them be hurt and then you can learn. So that may not be such a good idea to do. My, one of my little silly moments growing up was when we came to Perth. And, of course, we were country kids. My dad was a school teacher, so he spent most of his uh, time trying to chase promotion by going to little places in the country of Western Australia, teaching little tin pot schools in the middle of nowhere. So we were country kids. We came to the big smoke once, the big sticks, and we're going down Hay Street. This is back a few years ago, so some people may not get the full illustration. And in the old days, back in the last century when I lived, they had things called parking meters. They used to build these little things at about two meters of iron with a little meter on it. You had to put your money into it, and then a little flag would come up to say how long you got to park. I have never been to the country. I'm about six years old. My mum's got me and one one hand, she's got my sister in the other hand, we're walking down Hay Street and I am just enthralled by all these big buildings, so I'm looking around at everything when all of a sudden I walk into a parking meter, straight bang, and my mum's on a mission so she just keeps dragging me along I turn around to see what happened, I thought the city was far up into then and something hit me by the time I turn around, there's another parking meter. I walk into the parking meter. Apparently, I walked into about seven parking meters before I learned the nature of parking meters. Can we learn from the past? <laughs> Can we learn from our experience? I have a BA Ford. 
and I've just bought myself a little toy. If you stick it in the uh, into the cigarette lighter, it makes it sound like a three five one Chevy Camaro. <laughs> you tune it into the FM radio. You wind down the windows. You sit at the lights. You just boom. the turbo kicks in. It's so good. People are trying to look at. Where's that mode? He's got one in the boot. Obviously, something's going on there. So anyway, it's actually uh, um, just a very reliable car, and I'm very grateful for that. And it's on gas. Now, Ford have put within that particular car an instrument to warn you when you're running low on gas. So you get to a certain space, and the warning light comes on. It starts to flash orange. It will tell you you've got about 70 to 75 kilometers to go. Let me tell you, it lies. <laughs> it totally lies. The moment the light goes on, it tells you you've got 75 kilometers. It will stop any time it wants after that time. Now, I didn't learn that the first time. But it's a gas car, so if your car stops, you can't go get a little jerry can, you know, and just put a little bit in and try and get it going. You've got to get the tow truck and the whole bits and pieces and stuff. And so I live in serpentine. Serpentine doesn't have a gas station. I mean, it's a petrol station, but it doesn't have a gas station. So my closest fuel is about 35 kilometres away. And my daughter and my wife currently borrow my car at times. And of course, they're only going down to the shop. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've been watching that gauge flash orange, knowing it's going to stop. Now, let me just tell you, if you've got a BA Falcon, don't believe the warning sign. Can we learn from the past? Are you capable of learning from my mistakes? Are you capable of learning from Carolyn's mistakes? Are we capable of learning from the mistakes of the people in the Old Testament? Because they made some mistakes. And in fact, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 and we just have this um, recitation that uh, Heather just read to us about how the people of Israel... And if you read through the text, he's making a point. All our fathers, say all. They were all under the cloud, say all. They all went through the Red Sea, say all. They were all baptized, say all. They all ate, say all. And they all drank, say all. And what happened to all of them? They all failed. Except for two. It's two people, Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses didn't get in. And so here we have Paul trying to warn the church at Corinth that none of us are immune to making a mistake. None of us are bulletproof. None of us are invincible. I know you young people think that you could stand in front of trucks and they could just bounce off you and that you are indestructible, that you'll never get old, you'll never get grey hair, your hair will never fall out. I know you believe that, but let me tell you, you are just as human as we are. And so it's an incredible challenge because none of us are immune. In fact, Paul leads us on this journey. The moment you think you're safe and secure in this walk that we have with God is possibly your most dangerous point to be. Isn't that amazing? So we can be so close to God so it doesn't matter what you did, past tense. It doesn't matter what you know, present tense, or even where you are. What matters is what's in your heart. It's not what's in your past, but what's in your heart that will determine 
your destiny. On the 29th of January, 1839, Emma Wedgwood, of the famous Wedgwood family, very wealthy family, I think they made uh, cutlery and crockery and... Crockery, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little Wedgwood. So Emma Wedgwood, 1939, 29th of January, she married. She was 30 years of age. She wore a green dress. She got married in a little Scottish village known as Maya. And uh, their honeymoon consisted of a carriage ride to the local hotel where they had sandwiches and a glass of water. That was a big deal in those days. And she married. She was a devout Christian. She was 30 years of age. She wasn't the most attractive woman. She was very delighted to have been accept a proposal. A Christian woman, even though her family were deists, she herself had come to faith, had become born again by the Spirit of God, believed in heaven and hell, and that it made a difference how you spend your life. She got married. The man she married, who was a deeply devoted husband, his name was Charles Darwin. And so initially they find out that they are at very different places in terms of their view about whether God exists or not. Charles Darwin, of course, was a theological student. He trained to become a priest. But somewhere on his journey through some tragedy, he began to doubt that God existed. This is a big deal to Emma and as what she would do to try and communicate with him, which is not a bad strategy, she'd write him a letter. Sometimes if there's a very sensitive issue between two people, um, we find that my wife and I, we tend to have a discussion about it. It's often a very loud discussion. In fact, my most recent toy, I almost wore it to church today, has a sound meter built into my shirt. A real sound meter. And uh, did you see it, Sam? Was it Elijah? Sorry. Elijah, sorry. So as it talks, the sound meter goes up and down like this. I thought I'd distract you too much for work today. But I think it's so cool. So now I've bought that as a feedback meter for my wife. So I can say, honey, it's in the red zone. <laughs> you are shouting. Oh, I'm not shouting. <laughs> so when things are a little bit tense, sometimes what you do is you write a letter so you don't get the shouting and all the rest. So he wrote, Emma wrote a letter to Darwin, to Charles Darwin, says, uh, honey, I'm really concerned that you're locking faith in God out of your life. And that you've already made up your mind. You're not remaining open. And she really pleaded with him. Poured her heart out. And how what she greatly feared is that although they had a great relationship, that they would spend eternity apart from each other. And this letter is still available today. And uh, she wrote back to him. He wrote back to him. And on top of that letter that, she, that he wrote, he kept this letter now available, he wrote these words back to Emma. Dear Emma, when I'm dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this letter. And he signed it CD. You know, he was so close to the kingdom and missed it. When we entered to the 20th century, we were Christians in worldview. As we've entered into the 21st century, most of us are now Darwinists. And we have a meaner, crueler, colder, more terrible world. Because Charles Darwin missed it by that much. It's important, isn't it? 
you can be so close to God. You can be like the bird on the telephone wire. Really close, but no contact. <laughs> no communication going on. So I want us to look at the past, look at ourselves. In verses 6, uh, Paul is saying that, look, there were four blessings that came to the children of Israel, the people in the Old Testament. One blessing was guidance. Hallelujah. Any believers here today knows that God can give you guidance, can give you purposeful direction at critical points in your life. There is direction that there was supernatural deliverance that rescued them from the plagues of Israel, from the armies of the uh, Pharaoh who were trying to kill them. Who knows that God can deliver? Yeah, so God gave them guidance. God gave them deliverance. Fantastic. God gave them supernatural food. God gave them supernatural provision through water. God did four wonderful things. Interestingly, he has four complaints then that they failed. They failed because of immorality. They failed because of idolatry. They failed because of grumbling. And they failed because of testing the Lord. The one that shocks me is an immorality. That I can understand. The fact that God gets really cheesed off about grumbling, I find fascinating. You know, immorality, adultery, all those biggies. And yet he doesn't seem to like grumbling. It's amazing, isn't it? So he says, we need to take a good hard look at ourselves. Aussies have that expression in their vernacular, don't they? Take a good hard look at yourself, son. And sometimes we need to have, how are we really doing? He says in verse 6, these things happen to them as examples. These things happen to them as lessons in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 in the message version says, these are warning markers, danger in our history books written down so we won't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They were just at the beginning. We are now at the end. But we are just as capable of messing up as they were. That would be a really good place to say amen. But it's not comfortable, is it? We are just as capable of messing up as those who died in the wilderness. Yeah, horrible, isn't it? So in verse 40, it says, if you think you're safe, watch out. I was in Homecraft the other day. I'm a boy. I'm a man. Send me to Bunnings. I'm in paradise. I'm in, I'm in Disneyland for men. I want to buy everything and I want to do the backyard blitz just between the ad breaks. <laughs> so I'm down at Homecraft, looking at all the new stuff, power tools. Oh, who likes power tools? I buy my wife power tools all the time. <laughs> Here's your anniversary. A chainsaw, honey. <laughs> power tools. So I'm going through the power tools. Now, I have a weird sense of humor. That might shock some of you. <laughs> weird sense of humor. So I'm going through the power tools, and one of the... Uh, Service people come through and very happy place. Uh, they're good, good at service at this stage. And uh, and I had this joke with them saying, hey, with these power tools, so in order for us to really understand what they do, you should plug them all in. And he, this, this look of horror comes <laughs> over his face. He thinks I'm serious, you see. <laughs> this look of horror comes over his face. goes wide in his face. says, oh, we can't do that. Says we have customers hurting themselves every week with the power tools. 
He says, well, you're joking. He says, no, 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 no. He says, we are so glad that all the battery ones have now run out because people would come in and they'd drill through their hands and they would, you know, start doing things and bits and pieces. We had the ambulance coming every couple of days because people were actually messing with the power tools. And there's a big sign there, please don't touch the power tools. Isn't it amazing? There was a guy who uh, unfortunately got eaten alive by an alligator up in the Northern Territory. And I can remember the interview. There's the uh, local wildlife officer leaning on the sign that says, warning, crocodiles <laughs> eat people, you know, big jaws like this, in German, Achtung, you know, and a few other languages and stuff. And he's just saying, you know, this guy's been it. It's a tragedy. But why can't people just read the signs? Why can't people just obey the signs? You know, worst thing you can do if you've painted something is put a wet paint sign up on it, don't touch. Because you know what everybody's going to do, don't they? <laughs> They're going to go up there and say, why don't people... And here's this danger of idolatry. And as moderns, we don't easily identify our God, small g, versus our God, capital G. Simply idols are that which we use to give our life meaning. You know, wanting an iPhone, because all the kids have got an iPhone, can easily become an idol. Um, so idols are that which we use to give our life meaning. Things that we use to give our life status. Cars, trophy wives. Idols are what we use to make our life feel better or to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Idols can be measured by what we give our discretionary time to what we give our discretionary money to and what we give our discretionary talent to. They're our idle small I. Here are some diagnostic questions to determine whether you've got an idol in your life. And the problem is here, Paul is saying, you guys think this can't happen to you. That, you know, he's just made the point that all, 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 if you think you're safe, be careful. Watch where your heart really is at. Where have you placed your heart? Because you can live close to God, yet if your heart's direction is not right, you can go to places of wilderness and losing God's pleasure on your life. Here's some diagnostic questions. What are you most afraid of? What do you really long for in your life? Where do you go for comfort? Hmm. What do you complain about the most? What angers you the most? What makes you the happiest? Here's another one. How do you explain yourself to others? My name is Mike Keating and I am a... What makes you mad about God? What do you brag about? What do I want to have more than anything else? What do I sacrifice most for in my life? If I could change one thing in my life, what would it be? Whose approval do I seek? Mm. Well, this is a bit ouch. You know, I think for pastors, sometimes their, their church can be their idol. Their ministry can be their idol. 
What do I want to control or master? What is my secret? What comfort do I treasure the most? See, we, don't, we, we, we could recognize a stone Buddha or some idol, but the things that want to weigh upon our heart and steal us away from God are often these more subtle things, particularly, I think, in this world. Idolatry is serving the created order more than the order of the Creator. It's pretending that our self-imposed hell of selfishness, that's what it is, the, the desire to please me is a slavery that will make me miserable. That's the human condition. I want to be God. I want it all my way. It's all about me. That is the slavery of the human condition. That's what sin has done to us. We are self-focused rather than God and other focus. So it's pretending that our self-imposed hell of selfishness, of being addicted to pleasing me, of being in control, that's solved by me loving me, serving me and worshipping me. That's the illusion of sin. Look after Mike and the world will be better. This idol may be an outward stone, may not be an outward stone in your house, but can be an inward stone of the heart. Let me just say to you that we need not to be people of idolatry. We can worship our church, we can worship our brand, we can worship our wife, we can worship our hobby, we can worship our football team. John Bevere is a very good teacher and he was just saying he had some idolatry and he didn't like it, he didn't realize it. Now this is going to really offend some people this morning, so let me just put that out there. This is not Mike, okay? So I'm free from this. This is John Bevere, right? You're going to get cross? You're not going to get cross with me, are you? You're going to get cross with John Bevere. Is that all right? All right. John Bevere liked his sports. Oh, I can feel it already. Loved his sports. It's the grand final. There's 10 minutes to go and the game's still up for grabs. He's sitting there with his popcorn and his Dr. Pepper and he's enthralled in the game and God comes to him in that moment. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to pray right now for 10 minutes. And John Bevere says, God, you're joking. I'm not going to do it. I will do it when I finish. In fact, what I'll do is I will pray for two hours after the game. He sits there and watches the game. Then after the game, he gets up and he goes to talk to Jesus. We find Jesus isn't talking back. (laughs) And he worked out that it was an idol for him. And so for him, this is not for you, but for him, he suddenly had to realize when God taps you on the shoulder, it's for a reason, and he's not there for your convenience. We're here for his convenience. And so he confessed and repented. And today he's allowed to watch the football, but it's no longer an idol in his life. So the first step to being idolatrously free is to recognize that you may have an idol in your life. And it may be actually a good thing. That's the tough thing. It could be a good thing. But if it's your substitute for God, it's a bad thing. God must be first. He needs to be the priority in your life. So what you need to do is recognize the idol. For some women, the idol is the man in their life. I tell you, we make girls, let me tell you, men make very bad gods. Can any women say amen? 
<laughs> we make very bad gods. We will never satisfy all your needs. Only God, we need to recognize the idol. We need to see them and name them. Recognize, then repent. We need to confess and we need to break them. Now, in the other parts of the world, when it came to idols, it was pretty easy. You could take out a sledgehammer and kill the sucker. You know, Gideon went out and knocked over the idol. I mean, he did it at midnight. He was a bit of a coward when he did it, but he did it. Uh, I was in uh, Singapore some years ago, and uh, a person in the church, he came from a Chinese background, and uh, he had an altar in his home. He'd come to faith. He was still a relatively new believer. And as we preached on some things, he felt God speak to him and wanted us to destroy the altar. So I'm now invited into this man's home to destroy a Chinese altar. I've never done this before. I was quite looking forward to it, you know. <laughs> I'm good at breaking stuff. <laughs> so we go in there, and it's made out of wood. It looks a bit like a cabinet. And there's a few bits of jade and bits and pieces over it, little gold stuff and things. So first of all, we've got to, we've got to cart it downstairs because everybody lives in flats in Singapore. So that was really exciting. It was heavy. We go down there. We've got sledgehammers. And as I try to break this idol, this uh, altar, physically, it resisted in ways that were justified imagination. There was something spiritual going on. You know, I would go up. You know, I, I, I could take a look at this pulpit. You give me a sledgehammer. I reckon the first thing is going to take it off. This thing, you know, it bounced off boom like this is tough incredible so we prayed and uh we and eventually it came apart and it fell to bits and stuff but the thing is after that happened that suddenly there'd been sickness in the home for many many years we had an older mum living in the home been very sick all of a sudden from that time blessing came to that home you know the curse was broken incredible things began to happen and so that's fantastic because you can see the idol you can wreck the sucker. But some of us need to understand that maybe you need to break your computer or unplug the internet or get rid of the car or whatever it might be. It's easy when you can see it, but what we have to deal with is intangible. There's the spiritual power behind these things that can rob our life. Jesus needs to be center. If he's not center, then other things will seek to fulfill it. So recognize the idol, repent, confess, break it. And then we need to replace it with Jesus. If there's just a vacuum in your life, you will still struggle with temptation. You will still have issues. We actually need to put Jesus in the center. It's a good thing to kick the rotten thing off the throne of your life, but then bring Jesus in and sit him in the place. And say, now be the center of my life, God. I desire, I want you to be the center of my life. And there'll be days when I fail, and there'll be days when I succeed, but you are my God, and I will worship you. I will serve you. I will give you my best. Helping a young man right now who's struggling with the area of pornography. And he's just gone 29 days without accessing pornography, and he just fell. And I said to him, fantastic. He's looking at me shocked. This is not fantastic. 29 days. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And one day, fantastic. Hey, you, if, you, if, you were, if you were a prize fighter, MMA, martial arts or something like that, you won 29 matches in a row, you'd be happy for the one loss, wouldn't you? 
Because you're going to win the next 29. We're going to believe 29 is going to become 30. Yes, we are human. We're going to struggle, but we need to get our priorities straight. Putting God first. So recognize the idol, repent, replace with Jesus, and then rejoice. Because instead of guilt and failure, you will discover, you will discover, you will discover the transforming power of grace in your life. God will come through with strength. And you'll be able to say, yes, I'm an overcomer. Yes, I'm a victory. Just not in hope, but in my experience, God has come through. And finally, we need to lean upon Jesus. Verse 13, one of my favorite passages of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. If it's not something you've memorized, then you need to memorize this one. It's one of those sorts of verses. No temptation has overcome you except which is common to man. See, one of the aspects of temptation is this. I'm different. My circumstances are different. It's true, isn't it? It's the little lie. So I somehow deserve this. If you were exposed to what I was exposed, you'd understand. You'd understand why I would fall in this area. And the Bible comes out and says, no, you're just the same as everybody else. Everybody faces the same thing. We're all human. We all will struggle with temptation. So whilst this is common to every person, the Bible says, but God is faithful. Hallelujah. And he will not, he will not allow you to lose. That's the promise of God. He's not going to let it happen. But how does that occur? Well, he tells you. Because when you get to the really tough place, God says that he'll make a way of escape for you, that you may be able to bear it. In fact, the word bear it's not actually in the original language. It sort of gives you the impression of bearing it in the sense of, oh, you know, God, you're going to make a way up, but I'll just be able to bear it, you know. You know, it's really tough, you know, but I can just bear it, you know. That's a lot what you might think it is. But what it's really saying is that you'll be able. There's no bear in it. Come on. You will be able. The word's dunamis, dynamite. You will have power. The way out's not some sort of a, okay, I'm being beaten up and I'm just going to crawl away to some sort of little area and get out the exit door and no one's going to find me. No, it's a way out. The word here for escape is actually a military word that's used to describe the place where an army comes in to land in order to take over a country. Like when the D-Day, when all the... Normandy, better, Normandy. D-Day's when they left, isn't it? Yeah. It's when they... It's like a landing point. There's a better word for it. What do you call it? A beachhead. Who said beachhead? Beachhead, yeah. The word literally is God will make a beachhead for you. So this is not an escape in the sense of running. This is actually escape in the sense of, here's the way in for victory. This is where all the forces of God and the angels and the power of the Holy Spirit are going to come in to your life to give you victory over this. I want to tell you, I'm human. You cut me, I bleed. You hurt me, I cry. There have been times when I have said to God, 
God, I cannot do this. This is too hard. I can see no way out. God, I want to give up. There have been times when I've driven around in my car for hour after hour after hour, just not knowing whether I can pull into the driveway of my home. There have been times when I've been so challenged by what's happening around me with stuff that I do locally in this church here, I do globally around the world, I've done it at a state, national level. There have been times when I've got to the end of me. There have been times when I've complained to God and said, God, I can't do it. But you know what? I found the Holy Spirit coming to me and says, Mike, you can. You can. Nothing that will come your way will defeat you. There's no trial. There's no test. There is nothing that can defeat you. And if the very point you think you're going to fall off and fail, it's at that point that the miracles will come. And what I can tell you is that I've just found that to be true. I found it to stink. I found that I hate it. I found that it's really hard. My wife is very unwell right now. This morning I put on high off on YouTube Hillsong and Gregorian chants. It's an interesting combination in the morning just to help prepare my heart before coming to church. And I put on a little song by... Um, um, my arms wide open. My wife just starts to cry profusely and really distressed. You know, I can't do this anymore. I can't walk. I can't drive the car anymore. I'm just useless. And she's in a really bad place emotionally, just touched so by the music and the promise coming out of this particular song. You know, all I can say is I know what the Bible says. I have no logical, rational, easy, cheap, religious cliche to give her. But what I know is this, God has a way. I know that with every fiber of my being. I know that God is the way maker where there is no way. I know that God's going to come through. And I know that even when we think we have no power to endure, we have power to endure. I know that and I'll work that out and I'll believe that with every fiber of my being. I have learned that if you lean upon Jesus, he does not fail you. And I've gone too long. I apologize. apologize. I told a terrible story on Wednesday night for the Connect groups. Um, but it makes the point, I think. The father wants to teach his little son, you know, a little four-year-old, that God uh, just wants to teach him a lesson. So, son, I want you to learn a lesson. So he takes him up to the second story of the little house, leans him over the balcony, says, wait there, son. He goes downstairs and says to his son, okay, I want to teach you a lesson, son, jump. And the little four-year-old boy says, no, daddy, no, daddy, it's a bit too far. He says, no, jump. I want to teach you a lesson, son, jump. He says, I don't want to do it, it's too far. He says, no, jump. Come on, jump. I'm down here, you jump. And so the little boy eventually gets up the courage and jumps. Father stands back. Let's the boy fall to the ground. And he says, son, I wanted to teach a lesson. Don't trust anybody. Horrible story, isn't it? Horrible story. Yet, for many of us, that's the human experience. 
Her dad, does, her dad has let us down. Her mom has let us down. Her partner has let us down. Her children have let us down. Her pastors have let us down. That is the human experience. But can I tell you, if God asks you to do something, he will always catch you. He is forever faithful. He is forever true. Nothing that comes your way will overtake you because God is faithful. And he will not let you fall. You may fall a long way before you feel the embrace of his catch, but he's waiting and he will catch you and you will come through. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Bible. So, hey, tough times come. Amen? Tough times come. But God is faithful. And where there is no way in the natural, he will make the way. There is always, there is always, there is always an answer. John Maxwell tells in his book, it's an illustration I've used before, The Leader Within You. And I've had the blessing of actually visiting the Great Wall of China some years ago in freezing conditions. The see the right Reverend Dr. David Storer on the Great Wall of China with an icicle off the end of his nose. Not a pleasant sight. (laughs) Not a pleasant sight. It's an incredible wall. You know, you can still see these magnificent, over hill, over dale, amazing things. It was made so high that no one could climb over it. It was made so thick no one could dig through it. It was made so strong that no one could fight against it. Yet within the first hundred years that the Great Wall of China was built, China was invaded three times. You know why? Because people just opened up the door. And they walked in. All you have to do, guys, is to say no. No way. Jesus' way. (laughs) He is the way, the truth, and the life. So whether it's grumbling... God doesn't like grumbling. What happens when you're grumbling? It's actually unbelief in disguise. I hope you've heard me. Grumbling is unbelief in disguise. You know, if my wife came into my home and says, oh, I hate this place. There's no food. There's nothing here. This is horrible. I've got nothing to wear and stuff. Grumble, grumble, grumble. It reflects on my ability as a husband to love and care for her. Do you hear what I'm saying? It reflects. When you grumble, it reflects on your God. You're saying God's doing a bad job. I don't think God's doing a bad job at all. He's doing a pretty good job. And sometimes he wants to just get us to grow. So whether it's grumbling or whether it's bumbling or whether it's crumbling, we can learn from the past. We can look to ourselves and we can lean upon Jesus who will never fail us. Father, I thank you, Lord. I've gone long. I do apologize, Lord. I want to respect these people's time. But, Lord, it's so important that our heart affection is set in the right place. And, Lord, we are all the same. We're prone to distraction. We're prone to the easy answers, Lord. We're prone to the things that we can materially touch. Well, that's why idolatry still exists, Lord, all these centuries, because it can be seen, because it can be touched. It might be stone and useless, but at least we can see it and touch it. Lord, forgive us. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, I do pray. Lord, if there's an area in our life where you are not number one, that, Lord, we would name it, displace it, and let you come. 
be number one. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. When I was a young Bible college student, I was preparing for uh, my first preaching session in chapel at our National Bible College, and I was pretty intimidated. Preach in front of your peers is always the hardest thing to do. And so I prepared the text of my sermon, and then I was now just trying to get my heart right. So I'd gone for a long walk with the Lord. I, I, I just really do relate to God in creation. So this is the Blue Mountains. So it's not a bad creation, the Blue Mountains, going down things. And as it was, I was singing, which is not my strength. Some of you may have noticed. And I was singing an old chorus. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. So simple. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. And that is so bad. But thank you for trying to help me. So I'm singing this song under my breath. He's all. Not even really worried about the sermon. Just trying to draw close to God. And the Holy Spirit came. And it's like he punched me in the stomach. And he said, Mike, you're a liar. Come on. You're joking. I'm here. I've given up a career for government. I've sold my home. I'm ducks at the college. I'm about to preach to my students. And I'm actually taking time out of my schedule to sing to you. Here's all I need. I said, no, you don't really mean that, Mike. He said, yes, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. We had a bit of a conversation. And then he said, Mike, if you were to suddenly, you know, crossing the road tomorrow, get hit by a car, whole life changed in front of you. It happened to our sister Lorraine so many years ago. And you were never to preach. You were never to do all the things in your heart. Could you still sing that song and mean it? You're all that I need. And all of a sudden my heart was open to truth. And I started to sing. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. Sing with me. He's all I need. He's all. one more time. Sing it with me. He's all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. And I've found that to be the truth, my friends. No money in my pocket is all I need. 
No hope in my life is all that I need. Great challenge around me. He's all I need. He's all I need. He's all we all need. His name is Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for being patient with me this morning. I've gone a little bit long. We do have a great prayer team. We see miracles happen on a week-by-week basis. So if you've been touched by some way, if you want to respond to the prophecy or some of the challenge we've given today, we do welcome you to come out at the front after the service. And uh, elsewise, we want to invite you back to stay for a fellowship and uh, just have a cup of coffee and share your time. If it's short, because I've already abused the privilege. And your yes, glory Lord. shine on morning teaching. Lord Jesus, let us stand in the glory of you. Lord Jesus, you cured my brother. Yes, now Lord. cure morning teaching. Yes, and Lord. let her walk again and drive again yes, and do Lord. her normal chores with mm. all this and give Pastor Mike the strength to look after her. Thank you, mm. Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. God's good. God is very good. So we're going to sing a happy song because it was a little bit of heavy message. So maybe, um, oh, God, you're so good was nice, wasn't it? <laughs> you're the boss. God bless you. Put your hands together, this great team. Don't they look fantastic? Mark and... The team, the choir, all the red and black, all color coordinated. Let's stand, let's rejoice. Happy days.
Shit.